0: Welcome, everyone, to the ortho Real podcast. Uh, we are delighted today uh, to have somebody very special with us. Uh, it gets no more ortho and no more real than Dr. Leo Whiteside. He has been involved in design and development of hip and knee arthroplasty for decades. Uh, obviously, one of the, the thought leaders and the giants in our community, uh, really an icon, uh, we're also joined by Kevin Brown of Device Nation, who's going to help us uh, with podcasting and with questions and and making this a real interview. Um, we're talking and and focusing a little bit on history of joint replacement implants, particularly of the, the knee and hip, uh, trying to get some of these things down before they're they're lost to history or not recorded somehow. Dr. Whiteside, thanks so much for joining us.
1: It's a great pleasure to be here. Thanks for having the opportunity to talk about uh, something that's uh, extremely important in in health, uh, becoming even even more important.
0: Kevin, welcome.
1: Thank you, sir. It's an honor to be on the show uh, with both of you.
0: Dr. Whiteside, um, I think as we look back to the 19th century, there were a lot of – attempts at some some various interposition arthroplasties. Uh, in the early 20th century, the Judea brothers, uh, Dr. Smith-Peterson, some others, uh, did some ceramic and, and glass and bakelite type uh, ephemeral head hemiarthroplasties. But in the modern era, I, I think at least of, of maybe 1950s and onward, where we really started to get uh, some of the predecessors of our more modern implants in the knee and hip. I uh, think about uh, Austin Moore for hip, uh, Thompson for hip, um, and then some of the early knee designs. What can you tell us about the history of, of these joint replacement implants or where, where you see it kind of starting for hip and knee in a more modern context? Well, You, you
1: know, I think most people um, point to John Charnley's uh, efforts to cement the hip in uh, as the, the sort of beginning of the modern era of arthroplasty, but you know I'll tell you something. Um, I, I think I think uh, the cemented total hip was a huge misstep. Uh, the, the Ling hip and uh, McKeith Rahr and 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 others were making some real headway with cementless fixation of metal to bone with bone ingrowth back in the 1950s and 60s. And cement sort of blew all that away. It, uh, it, for one thing, it was a huge marketing effort, and Char- John Charnley was a, the, one of the best marketers in the history of medicine. Uh, people found it very easy to get on board with that guy. And he had the... Uh, Entire uh, British Isles behind this effort too. Don't, most people don't realize what an effort it was to get him to Ridington, to get him up and rolling, and all the facilities in place to, uh, to to generate this cemented hip mo- movement. And then, of course, it went directly into cemented total knee. And it took us decades to get us to get away from from cemented total hip, and it, we, it wasn't just by accident that we got away from cemented total hip. Despite all the facts that and, and all the papers that were coming out from people with a huge vested interest saying that cement was just fine, in fact, superior to cementless, the practitioners went to cementless anyway because they... We were tired of dealing with the complications of cement in total hip arthroplasty. And it's uh, one of the things that we, that, that era that we kind of weren't ready for. And I, as a young or- practicing orthopedic surgeon, I saw cement get up and take off, and, and I was just loath to pack bones full of cement. But that's what we had. But I'll tell you what, it, it gave me a real incentive to get in the laboratory and uh, get um, uh, into the the literature and to do everything I could to get cementless hip and then as soon as I could get my hands on cementless knee uh, up and roll.
0: That's fascinating to hear from that context. I think from my perspective, uh, at least the the narrative that, that comes about maybe and is adopted or heard by younger surgeons is that uh, that Charnley was sort of an outcast, that there was this real pushback against the idea of really of arthroplasty in general because of some of the complications associated with it. And you certainly hear about uh, Ring and, and McKee Farrar and I believe the Urist and some of those other uh, early designs, uh, being associated more with the the metal-on-metal metal articulations, do you think they had maybe better fixation options in terms of the cementless uh, options available with that, but maybe they were uh, a little behind the eight ball in terms of, of having that hard-on-hard hard bearing surface?
1: Uh, mm-hmm. Yes, you, you said a couple of things I think that are really apropos, and I think that's the next Next uh, feature to address is the bearing surface itself, and also you mentioned that uh, Charlie was uh, was an outcast and and uh, had to uh, prove his point to a skeptical, uh, uh, non receptive audience, and you know that's uh, I, I, that's so true of anybody who does anything innovative, whether it's <laughs> whether it's good or bad, you have to fight that um, established. Um, uh opinion oh, it's, and always and most of us who have been inv- involved in development realize that uh, the the future is what's really real and the present really isn't and uh, if, if you believe what 90 percent of people believe you're wrong and that Charlie face that and, and and I have and almost anybody else who's had an innovative approach to anything in science and technology has found that uh, they've they found something that's true and real, and still the establishment is believing something that is wrong to the, the, the person who has stepped out away from the fog. And so you're right about Charlie. He was, to a certain extent, a, a maverick. He was a sort of a mechanical engineer sort of guy. And he wasn't afraid to take on a new idea. The guy was fearless, absolutely fearless in terms of uh, the, the, uh, the bearing surface as well. He mentioned the bearing surface. And, you know, Charlie's original bearing surface was stainless steel against Teflon. And I'm telling you, he ruined hundreds of hips before he realized what was happening. Then he had to take them all out and clean up that god-awful, god-awful mess. Wow. And then, of course, about the same time was metal on metal. In fact, metal on metal preceded uh, the so-called low-friction arthroplasty that Charnley was so intent on developing. But he, he, you know, this guy was persistent, and he <laughs> went from uh, Teflon to uh, uh, high-density polyethylene and then finally ultra-high molecular weight polyethylene and then that innovation was what saved arthroplasty because metal on metal back in the 70s, early 70s was falling apart. I mean, ruining people and the literature was full of it about what are we going to do about these huge uh, fists that are developing around these metal on metal hips and also the high loosening rate. And then Charlie's Low friction arthroplasty made it metal on polyethylene, which was way better than metal on metal. It's amazing that we have forgotten, uh, that that the community forgot about that trap of metal on metal in the early 1970s up to the mid-1970s. And, and so here I was an established orthopedic surgeon watching everybody doing metal on metal again. Marketing was huge. And I called my, my fellows and ex-residents up and said, don't do this. And they <laughs> patients come in asking for it. And if I don't do it, somebody else will. And, and, and then as the time went on, I got more and more calls about those guys saying I should have listened.
0: You have touched on just a, a couple of profound points there. And I think just sort of the the renegades that really develop any of these disruptive technologies in any field are so important. And it's um, it's a bit different and it's a bit tough as far as how we integrate some of those things in medicine, because we are in fact affecting our, our patients' lives in a very real way. And what's what's acceptable yeah. mm-hmm. in terms of risk to all of it. And I think we could probably jump off for hours on that. Um, and, and then your points on metal on metal. I, uh, you know, certainly a contemporary and colleague of yours, Dr. Tony Headley was my professional mentor and uh, warned me when I was a fellow as, as metal on metal was still making its rounds that uh, this was a bad, bad deal. And when the, the lawyers get hold of it, look out. So, when I started seeing the commercials for it years later, it just it just all came yep. back to me. It was mm-hmm. so so prophetic on that, and it sounds like you were with your fellows as well. Yes, yes,
1: yeah. I'm so proud of Tony for for taking that stand as well. He and I were uh, among the the real minority surgeons who who um, refused to to get involved in that metal on metal. A lot of good guys, otherwise wise heads for that and and you know something where where we've still got other things like that going on and, uh, and that, that need to be that need to be thought
0: I want to talk about some of those but if we go back um, and this is obviously a broad question as well if you think about hips and you think about knees in a modern context let's say from mid 1960s on what do you see as the the most important designs uh, either in terms of a particular device or a particular brand or, or just a particular concept and who were the, the really innovative uh, thought leaders, if you will, that were behind those who, what do you see as the, the key points?
1: Uh, you know, uh, John Insall was uh, to, to, to my way of thinking such a giant, and arthroplasty, yeah, yeah, very uh, solid, uh, sensible designs. Um, and, uh, and Al Burstein, the mechanical engineer, the two of those guys working together developed an articular surface for a total knee that still ought to be used on everybody. Um, single radius of curvature on the femur, uh in the, in the coronal plane, and single radius of curvature on the uh, uh, on the tibial polyethylene, uh, and uh, and and stick with that. <laughs> but you know we've had all these strange flat surfaces and other screwball surfaces that just don't do not hold up to just basic decent bearing design. Uh, So those two guys, uh, and and the other other thing about John Insull was ligament releases to balance the knee. Uh, He wrote a beautiful article in Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery in the seventies that really did tell you, here's the way you release the medial side. Here's the way you release the lateral side. Some beautiful classic drawings and it still holds up. Uh, he, He. we found, we all found out early in total knee replacement that if, if, if you, you got your choice of leaving them crooked or not doing them. I mean, we didn't have any way to release ligaments, so we take this terrible varus or valgus knee and and do it inside you. You know, didn't really correct deformity, didn't really correct ligaments. And if you tried to correct deformity without correcting ligaments, as started thinking about. You ended up with a floppy mess, and then then they started developing these hinge arthroplasties, and and uh, to, to try to solve the ligament balancing problems, and uh, and John Insall was really uh, a, a, a great leader in how to how to get that um, balanced and aligned, and uh, it's so such an important concept. That's another really key figure, in... Uh, in cementless fixation in the hip. seldom mentioned is um, Emmett Lunsford. I don't know if you heard much about him, Matt, but Emmett Lunsford was uh, the, the father of the AML hip. He's the one that, uh, that actually coined the term Austin Moore Lunsford, because so it came after the Austin Moore femoral complex called AML hip. And he said, "Force coat this thing," and I almost start putting them in. And and he really made that work. And then Charlie Ng got on board with him. And then Emmett died in a in a plane crash. Very sad situation. Right as he was really catching on fire, but but uh, Charlie Ng did a good job picking that torch up and running with it.
0: Yeah, and so- those two guys are really important in cementless fixation and total hip. Certainly, Doctor uh name is the one I think of as being associated with that. And I actually, uh, while sure. I believe I've heard uh, Lunsford's name, I, I thought of AML as uh, Anatomic Medullary Locking. Um, that's right. And and, yes, s- and so I they did. did. <laughs> I did not know that other story <laughs> right. or that other connection. That's that's pretty fascinating. Yeah, and,
1: and there's an interesting legal uh, issue behind that as well. You know, the it was called the AML Austin Moore Lunsford. And then they wanted to get, get, get away from, from names for a couple of reasons. Uh, Emmett, Emmett Lunsford was a little bit difficult to deal with every now and then, and they wanted other people on board with it, and they didn't want to be marketing the Lunsford hip, so they started calling it the Austin uh, the, the anatom- anatomic medullary locking so they wouldn't have to change it away from AML that people were really picking up on. And then, when Emmett died in that airplane crash, his royalties, which were huge at that time, uh were diverted from his wife to the other camp of a <laughs> wow. m l developers, Charlie Aing and those guys and There was a great legal battle about who actually owned the rights to the a m l hit and the fact that it was called. The AML Lunsford, and they had it as well
0: documented, made it easier on Emmett's family. That's fascinating. I think that's uh, probably a story or a part of this that you're not going to see uh, in print a lot of places that comes from your very unique no, knowledge. Not,
1: not,
0: um, not, not, not like to. So, uh, obviously, as you mentioned, Dr. Insall, uh, along with Bernstein, a huge contribution in the knee space. Um, at least looking at it from, from this end of history, you sort of think back to that time and that there, were, there was that New York camp, if you will, with uh, Dr. Insall and uh, posterior cruciate uh, sacrificing designs. Um, we had mm-hmm. some others out there doing a lot of work um, around uh, cruciate retaining designs, um, Dr. Krakow, mm-hmm. Hungerford, uh, Headley, and others with, uh, with PCA. Um, you've obviously talked a lot about, uh, ligament balancing, uh, for anybody listening, you've got some great content over on ViewMedi, uh, with some cadaveric dissections and some other, uh, talk about that, but, um, other big camps, uh, around particular, uh, thought processes or designs that you think were important in that space? Well, I,
1: I think you did mention, uh, um, David Hungerford. Hungerford was a, a really important figure uh, with alignment. You know, he, he developed uh, that that extramedullary alignment system with Helmética about the same time that I was developing an intramedullary alignment system with pointing Wright. And so he and I locked horns all the time about whether you should go intramedullary or ex- extramedullary. But then it was we would put together a group of surgeons. And we'd have a hundred people in the room doing cadaver toe meat. and and we'd have with intramedullary alignment we'd have none of them put in crooked, none. And with <laughs> with the extramedullary, just down the hallway, <laughs> they would have thirty percent of those guys with a really crooked looking knee, even with a, a skinned out cadaver bone. You know the the um, the days of doing cadaver labs is definitely over. Uh, maybe not over but certainly curtailed we used to get in the in the plane with uh with boxes of of cadaver bones in our check luggage and a bunch of them in our carry-on luggage we well. wow. <laughs> we'd, we'd go to Omaha, Omaha, or somewhere and, and do a and, and check in into a hotel and get their conference room and do a cadaver lab <laughs> with the guys with the guys there locally so uh, that's the way we taught each other how to do arthroplasty surgery. Well, i to tell you the restrictions on that sort of thing are huge. Now.
0: It, it was a different you can't even time come for sure. To doing that kind of thing. Uh, so,
1: so you mentioned Ken Crackdown, and I, I really love some of the work that that Ken did too with uh, with, with alignment uh, of the knee. And, and those guys were involved in the PCA knee. Now remember, the PCA was a big failure in cementless fixation. And it's, it was because of inadequate fixation. An inadequate fixation of the tibial component especially. They were you know, getting where you could kind of get the femur, but the tibia was fixed with those two little angled pegs. And, and uh, that what made a difference was uh, adequate fixation of the tibial component. Another guy that seldom mentioned is Bob Bolt. Bob uh, was an engineer... Four-speed surgeon, and and his engineering con- concepts were simple. Like if it's not fixed with a peg, use screws too. <laughs> and he put, put the screws in the tibial component and solved the problem of fixation of that. And I've I've taken that and run with it all my life. The 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 way to you know, get that tibia fixed down the bone is with the spin and screws and so that was bob bolster's work to first demonstrate how effective that is we could have a bone with repetitive loading but unfortunately those guys that were involved in that amk knee amk knee was supposed to be the knee version of the aml uh hip amk knee had the crummiest locking mechanism for the polyethylene to the metal tray of anything I've ever seen. It was just as rickety as any piece of junk that you, you, could, you could find at Walmart. And I mean, <laughs> you put that polyethylene uh, in, you can put it in with your hand, or it might be, I think it, theirs was put in and held with a little clip. So you slide it in with hand, and then you slip a clip in there and tap it in. Wiggled immediately. And so here you are, the the polyethylene against this metal surface underneath that did nothing but just wear away and get loose and pump up and down and fill those screw holes full of cement debris and joint fluid. So uh, although it was was a great partial concept, they didn't finish off by locking and sealing the polyethylene into the metal. And, you know, that's another thing that we're – that, that has developed with, with time. Good engineering is not what we started out with. It's was crummy engineering. I mean polyethylene components that were uh, in the hip that were held in with a metal ring and, and not uh, pressed fit and locked and sealed into the metal shell. So here you have this loose polyethylene that passes the FDA wedge out test, but obviously fills the hip joint full of polyethylene debris. We're still kind of cleaning up the messes from from that era. It's amazing that if you think these basic simple things that make arthroplasty work had to be learned the hard way. Uh, that's one of the things I started working on early is putting the polyethylene component in. And driving it in, solidly fixed, captured peripherally with a ceiling rim. Now, that, that I started with uh, uh, Dow Corning Wright, and then with Smith and Nephew, we really picked that up and made that happen. And, and, uh, and the current need that I'm working on focuses on that. And then now, now I look at um, new designs, and more and more the designs are coming up to speed. But look at how long it's taken us to learn to fix the polyethylene bearing
0: surface firmly down to the metal. Conceptually, a, I think this sort of sorry. Uh, conceptually, I think that sort of circles back even to what you were talking about a little bit with Charnley, where there was, you know, the the bearing surface was better, and maybe the the fixation was not uh, not what it should have been uh, with cement. Um, yeah. So we sort of had one, yeah. one part of the design that was was a step forward or was really good, and it was held back by a, another portion of it. Um, and I think probably any, mm-hmm. anything is susceptible to that. Uh, from the hip side, I, I think you've been involved in uh, sort of a, a quadrilock-type uh, stem. Um, what do you see as, as key design features in terms of, of stem design and, and cup design and things mm. like that on the hip side, what, what have been the major steps mm. and, and what have, what have been your major steps? You know, um, the, it's so important, uh,
1: in the, in the femoral stem and total hip replacement <clears throat> to achieve torsional fixation. It's, it's pretty much got to be a stem. I think we've, not given up on attempting to resurface the femoral head, and most people have accepted taking off the femoral head and stem down the medullary canal, and that's definitely changing the, the function of the surface structures in that in, in, in that um, device, the bone, that is. So you got this stem that goes down the center of the medullary canal, whether it's not not hard bone, soft bone. And you have to find a way to get axillary and torsional fixation. And if you get a cadaver bone and and drive an implant in tightly and, and do axial loading, not really a problem. And with or without a collar, if you do a pretty decent screwing job, you you can get it axially fixed. But torsional fixation up to the loads that are actually applied in in uh, real life, difficult to do. So that, that, I think, is one of the things you really have to, to look for is torsional fixation. <clears throat> so one of the first guys to, to, get, to get on torsional fixation with a rectangular stem was spimular. That's a, another name that's a great name in orthopedics that is slowly disappearing. Spimular hip, the rectangular design, so simple. And so effective. Uh, and he, he actually used a grit-blasted surface rather than an effective porous coating. And if, I think if he had an effective porous coating to work with, his technology would have really taken off. But unfortunately, he didn't have that porous uh, surface. He just used a coarse grit-blast. Even but with I, what that... I found looking at cadaver bones, if you if you put a rectangular stem in and make sure you design it and broach for it so it gets fixed into the um, diaphyseal cortical bone and supported by a significant amount of the femoral neck, then that implant is hard to put in wrong. You know, I mean, it's, you're gonna it's gonna work, and and I'm talking about hundreds in a row without a single case of loosening, but it all, you know, one of these things where several things which are not perfectly intuitively obvious have to be done well, and, you know, I think we're pretty good with that, except I still see a lot of stems that uh, don't uh, work hard enough to get the initial torsional fixation of, of the femoral compost.
0: I think you've got a couple of great points there. I've uh, implanted a couple of Zweimuller type designs, uh, actually not in this country, but doing some some mission work um, where that was our, mm-hmm. our available implant, and they, they did quite well. Um, and I think your point about torsional stability is is key too and, and something that may be, uh, I don't know, I feel like we're getting that revisited a little bit. There have been some reports uh, actually tied to direct anterior approach hips uh, probably because though, those surgical approaches sort of mandate the use of a, of a shorter, often uh, curved stem yeah. uh, where you're seeing yeah. a lot of medial lateral wedge taper designs and, and there is a little, you know, not a huge, but a higher than expected uh, rate of stem loosening uh, reported in some of those. And I think that speaks yeah. maybe to what's being implanted and how they're being implanted in that situation uh, and not having that immediate torsional stability. Well, you know, you're exactly right, Matt. You, you know, if if
1: you can't get adequate uh, exposure and a straight down shot <clears throat> at the femoral canal, you have to accept a shorter stem, and so you have to sacrifice that uh, diaphyseal uh, hard um, cortical bone engagement. And so you're never going to get beyond that deficiency. You're going to have some loosening with stems like that. If you want to get your loosening down to one in a thousand, then you've got to go straight down the stem and get the diaphyseal cortex involved in torsional fixation. Again, looking at, at cadaver specimens, putting in a stem with or without actual um, cortical engagement and, and, and the diaphyseal portion of the bone, the upper diaphyseal portion of the bone, but, with, but without that at least in, uh, engagement, you sacrifice 25 percent of your load-bearing capacity with immediate loading. That's a lot. Uh, if you save a little bit extra neck, that adds some more as well. If you do both, save from neck. And engage the diaphyseal cortical bone. Uh, then torsional fixation is going to be good. It's going—it's kind of hard to screw it up. But if you—if you cut a lot of the neck off to get exposure of the femur because of limited approach, and if you use a short curved stem, <clears throat> oh, I think you're going to have a lot of luck, and <laughs> not have a lot of looseness.
0: Well, obviously those stems can do well, uh, but certainly we do have very different bone. I mean, between some patients with door A versus door C bone and, and everything in between yeah. and, and how, you know, some of those patients may need a yeah. different type of stem and that that may be limited sometimes depending on surgical exposure. Uh, Kevin Brown, jump in here. What uh, what have you got for Dr. Whiteside about the history of, of knee and hip implants coming from having uh, sold a few of these things over the years? And great stuff,
1: Dr. Whiteside. I've really enjoyed uh, just listening to this trip uh, down the corridors of joint replacement. One question I had, I had a surgeon tell me if I had to have one stem uh, on a deserted island, I only had access to one, it would be a Wagner because of the ability to to tweak version and pretty (laughs) consistent engagement. And I was just wondering, uh, what would your answer be to that question? If you were on a deserted island and the... Uh, you were only entitled to one stem. <laughs> w- which one would it be? And and I can have any one that I want. That's right. Um, you, you know, after having used a bunch of them, I I would I would choose, of course, the one that I developed myself. But but uh, I'm I'm going to exclude that because it's it's not not a fair question, not a fair answer to a fair question. And if I had one other than that, I'd taper uh, lock. Paper lock mm mm-hmm. you can broach for that guy and the, the taper lock that's a, that's a kind of highly developed uh, device uh, I think it's now offered simmer biomet uh, that guy will give you rigid fixation it gets you down to the diaphyseal cortical bone and ha- leaves enough neck that it, it's effective approximately as well and you can put it in with minimal tools. I read a great article the other day detailing Austin Moore and how he developed that prosthesis. And I love the punchline of the story where it showed uh, the, him having proudly welded that implant to the hood of his 1951 Chrysler. And I'm just curious if, if there was one implant, as we've talked about the corridors of history, if there was one uh, implant that you would weld to the hood of your <laughs> car, which one would one. that be? Well, I don't know. It might, it might well be that or the, uh, uh, the, the total or the femoral component. Right. So we've talked a lot about implants. Uh, we've talked uh, about the shapes and, and all these things. I want to talk just a minute about approaches because we've certainly seen that transition over the years. Posterior, posterior lateral, two incision, superior, direct anterior. Uh, where are we now on that evolution, of how we put those things in, and where do you think the dust is going to eventually settle? I can tell you unequivocally where we ought to be. Not where we are, but where we ought to be. Posterior approach. Absolutely should be posterior approach for a total hip replacement and forget about the rest of them. Never lift the abductor muscle group. Never split that group of muscles to get down the medullary canal of the femur. It's it, it's destructive to many patients. It's hard to get people to admit it and the uh, British Isles are totally dedicated to various of these abductor muscle splitting approaches that they've named for various British surgeons. I just think that's crazy. An anterior, you can't get enough exposure and you get into a tight situation and you end up dissecting the abductors off in order to elevate the femur enough to work on it. Posterior approach. You uh, can take the femoral head off in, a, in, in early in a very tight hip to get in. You can release the gluteus maximus tendon to get you more exposure to raise that up and you can get right down the medullary canal in the toughest of hips get a good effective implant in without damaging the abductor the abductors are just not considered enough so we're still working through uh marketing and just medical mainstream and and going through these strange uh, and then and that leads me into this these super path approaches and superior approaches where you go in and you put a retractor right into that abductor mechanism and blow it just in order to make a smaller incision. Uh, I, I, I just, I hope to live long enough to see people wake up to the foolishness of tearing up the abductors in order to do a total hip. When you can do a posterior approach and get it, Absolutely right. Dr. Whiteside, when I think of the the Mount Rushmore of joint reconstruction, uh, I see your face on there. and I see it uh, for one reason, your development of intramedullary knee instruments, which I think was pivotal to getting these things put in correctly. Uh, I'd love to know about that association with Dow Corning Wright and and how you came up with that idea. Well, you know, I was – I was just coming out of residency when I started working with alignment because I was struggling with using the standard uh, total condylar knee instruments. Uh, so um, I, in, in my garage, I took a, 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 a steel rod, bent it uh, to a five-degree angle, and put some pins on it, welded some pins on it, and then I started using that in the operating room. <laughs> Not the kind of thing you could do nowadays, but 'cause somebody, the head nurse, would be on right down there, and you'd be in front of a committee in no time. But that's that's what I had to work with, and and I so I started putting total condylar knees in with the distal femoral cut made by by that incision, and the, uh, looking. Then I became chairman of the horse feed department, and and I was looking for some backing to get this up and running, had no idea how that would work. And one of the sales guys who was just kind of getting up and running with pointing right said, huh, I know exactly who you ought to talk to. So back in those, those days, the developing surgeon would go to the, the president of the company and you sit down and talk and make a decision. And that's what we did. And we came up with the uh, ortholog instrumentation system, uh, made pretty much the way I made that first one in the, uh, in the operating room, I am in, in my garage. And I also made one to go right down the center of the tibia. Uh, it, that was straight. And then I found that I actually wanted to bend that one back four degrees. And so we ended up with a four-degree posterior slope on the tibia. Uh, the the intermediary alignment rod was uh, was kept by Dalcoin Wright on the femur and tibia both. A lot of the other companies got onto it quickly and uh, developed intramedullary instrumentation for the, uh, for the femur. And uh, they've, they've ignored how easy and, and important it is to use an intramedullary rod in the, in the tibia as well. I still do. I use intermedullary alignment in the tibia except in uni. Of course, use extramedullary in the uni, but um, intramedullary in the tibia. It was interesting to see the, the other companies try to try to compete with an intermediary rod, not even close. And the surgeons could see it, and that gave Dallas Corning a big advantage in the in the marketplace. And they they really went through an uh, in, in, interesting growth phase. But what really one that changed it was the rest of the companies found a way to work around the intellectual property and and get their own version of the intermedullary alignment system. Dr. Weiss, I'll never forget calling on a surgeon, and he had a model in his office, and it was the craziest thing I'd ever seen. It looked like a carnival ride in your knee, and it was the first mobile bearing. It uh, had two meniscal bearings in it, which I don't think that design is around anymore. It's gone to
0: a, a central pivot. But
1: I'd love to get your opinion on uh, Pappas and I believe Beacle, uh, their work yeah. in the 70s on the LCS. Uh, at the time, it was a New Jersey knee, and yeah. what, what you thought yeah. about it. Well, it it just it seemed like a good idea at the time. That's one of those things where, yeah, it just seemed like a great idea to make a great big bearing surface on the femur uh, to articulate the poly the uh, the polyethylene for the femoral component. Great big old bearing surface that would tightly fit, and then another big bearing surface underneath it that would rotate and uh, so it just seemed like such a good idea and it looked like it to me too and then everybody else tried to copy it but then if you looked at the wear data from that it turns out in the knee the bigger the surface area the the higher the volumetric wear and you got two of them (laughs) I just remember the the wear studies that finally started coming out showing that that is such a bad idea in terms of volumetric polyethylene wear and then we found complications with rotational dislocation of the bearing and that kind of thing and so while everybody was getting excited and up and running and getting their own version as the patent uh, ran out that's when we began to realize hey this is having a higher failure rate higher wear rate no matter what we do and, and the um The uh, the idea is pretty well gone now, don't you think? I mean, I've seen you see a mobile bearing still in in revision knees, revision hinges, and things like that. But uh, I don't I don't think a mobile bearing has any place in uh, in our in total knee arthroplasty. Doctor, you started out this conversation. Talking about the changes that are being made, and not all of them are good. I remember a concept in business school of the diminishing marginal returns curve, and, and I'm wondering if that's uh, where we are right now in implant design. Are we as good as we're going to get with metal and plastic, or do you think there's still
0: mm. some mm. room
1: for improvement? Well, there's. Uh, I don't see a lot of room room for improvement in the articular uh, surface design. Look at all the things that have been tried. Uh, you know, custom implants and all of this business with the, uh, custom uh, implant designed from an MRI or a CT scan. Well, it's gotten us nowhere. But the one big thing where we got to go, in my, in my opinion, where we got to go is ceramic thermal component in total need. Now, if you look at a total knee femoral component over the years, it scuffs up and sheds significant amount of metal, and it's not going to ever stop. A, uh, cobalt chromium sliding on polyethylene releases significant amount of metal or debris, much more than uh, than a femoral head against a, a polyethylene component in a total hip. And you know that we've gotten away from cobalt chrome femoral head in the hip, but we're still using this cobalt chromium femoral component in total knee. Uh, I've been told by one of my friends who who works with J and J that uh, the the uh, European version of the FDA has come out with labeling requirements now for total knee replacement that label the cobalt chromium femoral component as potentially carcinogenic, which it is. So um, we, I mean, we're, we've got to get away from that. And that's one of my major fo- focuses right now is to develop a ceramic cementless forest-coated femoral component for the knee. With that, I think, we'll take a step forward.
0: Dr. Whiteside, you've... Uh... Talked around this a little bit in some of our questions and, and hit on points of it. In, in terms of the implants themselves and, and what's being done and what's being designed right now, uh, where are we going wrong? Are there there are mistakes that are being repeated or, or designs that you just think um, they just don't have legs? They're not going to go. What's, uh, yeah. what's well, out there that we're doing wrong?
1: Yeah, um, well, I'll tell you what. Uh, not fixing the polyethylene well enough is a big issue. I still see these things coming out with polyethylene, lock the metal where it will leak, leak down through screw holes, loosen up, come loose. And uh, simple as that engineering concept is, I think the manufacturing is somewhat more difficult, uh, but um, that's, that's got to be done awfully well. I don't think it's being done very well right now. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think um, fiddling around with uh, mi- minimally invasive approaches in, in order to fool the public is a big mistake. I don't think you, we should attempt to uh, market incision length at, and make any sacrifices at all in terms of quality of uh, patient's end results.
0: That's an interesting concept. you know it's
1: something we're still learning something about uh, locking devices with a taper, aren't we still coming out with goofy tapers that are too small and not well and not well enough designed um, I, uh, I I think this' <laughs> it's tempting isn't it to, to come out with with something else that is mechanically unsound in the long term. I, I just, you know, I'm sure we're going to find some more things that are that are not so happy. You know, you mentioned uh, the the posterior stabilized knee. That uh, was one of insults, I think, mistakes: is to develop that posterior stabilized knee, take out the posterior cruciate ligament, and and then uh, substitute it with a plastic post. The the studies that are coming out now, especially that big Australian study show that the complication rate with these posterior stabilized knees over 10-year period of time is significantly higher and some catastrophic complication rates. You know, still, there's, we're still, another one, that's a separate issue, we're still messing up the femoral uh, surface of the patellofemoral articulation, designing it for a plastic components, it can never be fixed well enough to the femur, and not designing it well enough to be patella-friendly, so that the native patella is
0: perfectly comfortable against that bearing surface. Certainly touching on some controversial issues there with uh, with PS versus CR and with patella resurfacing or non-resurfacing. Uh, it is an interesting point yeah. about uh, cam post impingement and some of the other uh, issues that come up with those designs. And I, I, I certainly do sort of have this, this feel or this thought that we're getting a, a resurgent interest in medial pivot and ultra-congruent designs where the, the posterior cruciate mm-hmm. ligament is maintained or not maintained, but we're using something besides a cam and post uh, to stabilize that, mm-hmm. that anterior to posterior mm-hmm. translation. Uh, I mm-hmm. know you use a, an ultra congruent yeah. uh, in mm-hmm. one of your, your designs for your knee as well. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I, I think that's a good point.
1: Uh, ultra congruent and also uh, medial pivot. So, sort a of similar situation. Uh, and I, I find that medial pivot uh, interesting. Uh, and it does require sacrifice of the PCL in a lot of cases, but I think it makes some sense. To give your knee some AP stability because the P C L is often compromised in a totally and the A C L pretty much always taken out. So, um, um, I agree. I, I think that that, that 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 kind of highly conforming is very helpful when when you need it. But I wouldn't think I don't think we have to make make a knee replacement that uh, has to be medial pivot. I, I don't. I wouldn't want to have to always use that heel pivot component and make the ligaments adjust to it. I'll tell you one thing. I would. I wish we could do and do well. Would would be a modular knee system where if you put in a unicompartmental knee and they developed patellofemoral disease later, you could put in a patellofemoral as another. Um, relatively minor procedure, and then it's a lateral component component or compartment went down, add a lateral component to it. You know, that's what uh, Philippe Cartier did. I, I don't know if you know Philippe Cartier, but he's the great uni, uni knee guy, and that's kind of exactly what he did. He, one thing, he told them that the patellofemoral didn't make any difference. And if he put in a medial uni and they wore out the lateral side of his knee, he put in a lateral uni, and he did that consistently. And I don't know if he's still alive, but he went at least into his retirement saying that is absolutely the way to go. And if you go into his clinic and look at his knee patients, it's uh, pretty convincing. So I think it would be nice to have a, a a progressive modular system. So if you didn't fail, if your uni failed due to lateral or Compartment disease. You you could you feel good about going in and doing a lateral uni. You, I, I, you know, I think most people in the U.S. would feel kind of squeamish about doing that. I have done that. Matter of fact, I just don't see very many of them to do. But I've done a medial uni and had them do, develop lateral disease, and gone back and doing done a lateral uni on that knee and. There's a good ACL, good PCL, and a relatively minor procedure, and they're off and running again.
0: Doc, I uh, can't thank you enough for your contributions to the, to the field and to the development and design, and uh, also for talking to us today about uh, the history of some of this. I uh, greatly appreciate you spending the time with us, and uh, certainly if you've got anything else to, to add, Feel free to drop it in here. Well, you you know, uh,
1: I I feel it a great privilege to be asked to speak with you guys, and and it's uh, and and thanks very much for letting me ramble on about these things. Sometimes I I, I forget how much I've forgotten, (laughs) but it's good to be reminded every now and then. It's also interesting to have the opportunity to try to peer into the future again, and and uh, and discuss making those those tentative steps that you have to make if you're going to risk your uh, reputation and livelihood on uh, uh,
0: trying to uh, get involved with the next step. I think that window into the past helps us uh, a lot as far as figuring out the future here. So uh, thanks so much for all of this, and, and I greatly appreciate your time. Uh, thanks, Kevin, as well, for joining us. It's been great, guys. Thank, Thank you, an honor and a pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of the Ortho Real Podcast. An absolute pleasure to spend some time with Dr. Leo Whiteside, one of the icons in our field. Certainly a lot of uh, inside information there that would, would be lost to history if we didn't have the chance to uh, share this conversation. Many thanks to Kevin Brown of Device Nation. If you don't subscribe to Device Nation podcast already, go ahead and do that. Uh, Kevin has got a lot of awesome content on there, uh, some talks with some really uh, fantastic surgeons, people in the medical device industry, great people to hear from. Uh, check that out. Thanks so much for tuning in. Uh, check us out next time. We're Real.